Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Everybody, if you don't know me, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are in a series on spiritual disciplines. And every January, we're going to do a series on a discipline. It's a new year, it's a new you, and we make resolutions for your job and for your family and for your physique and all these different things, and sometimes we overlook that our spiritual life needs to be tended to. Now, that the way we grow closer to God is enhanced if it has some kind of intentionality to it. And so there are disciplines, there are practices, as we called them two weeks ago, habits of faithfulness that we can develop that will help us look more like Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing. And so we are talking about prayer. And it started last week, and we're going to finish it up next week. And, and as we talk about prayer, it's it's good to keep in mind what we mean by spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, as we've defined it, is they're a way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing hearts. Because my desire, our desire, God's desire, is not that we're kinder, more loving, more compassionate people if he's not changing us from the inside out. If Jesus and the Holy Spirit isn't forming us into a picture of who God wants us to be, we're not after behavioral change. God said, I created you with a mind, a will, an emotion, and because he gave it all to you, he wants all of it to worship him. Spiritual disciplines are a way that we do that. And so we're going to start this morning, like we start every Sunday morning at Crossroads before the sermon. We're going to pray for a second, and we have two goals every week. One is that you might know God. We gather here to read the scripture, to keep learning about a God that is beyond our comprehension, and that's a beautiful testament to his majesty. Two, we want to experience God. Mind, will, emotion, that's how we were created. If we just know God without any experience, our knowledge is cold and terse. And if we just experience God and don't know God, we have no depth to our worship. And so we want both of those things to happen because that's how we were created. And what that means is this morning, this is not just a one-way street, it's a two-way street, it's the Spirit of God works on your spirit right here, right now. And so we're going to pray. I'm going to allow you to pray silently to yourself that God just might reveal more of who he is, that God might do a work in you this morning, that you're here for a reason and a purpose, and God is here too, working on us, shaping us into the person of Jesus. And then I'm going to ask that you pray for me, that I say things that are good and encouraging and matter. All right, so let's pray together, and then we'll get going. God, I'm thankful for this morning, for the ability that we have, the privilege we have to come and worship together, to laugh together, and to sing together, and and I just pray that as we open the scriptures this morning, we learn something about who you are. It, it shapes our souls in a way that gives us more joy in following you. So I'd ask if you're comfortable, just for the next 10 or so seconds, say a silent prayer to yourself that God might, that the Holy Spirit might speak to you this morning through the scriptures. And then I'd ask that you pray for me. As I teach from the Bible this morning, that God uses it to be edifying and uplifting and encouraging so that we might together as a corporate body seek after Jesus and show people why he's worth it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So last week we talked about prayer. 
And the tension we dove into when we talked about prayer was, honestly, sometimes I, I don't know if prayer is the most efficient use of my time. And I said, as a pastor, this is either going to make me relatable or it's going to make you run to another church. Either response is just fine. But it says in the scripture that God knows what I want to pray. That the Spirit intercedes for me when I can't put words to what I want to pray for. And so why can't I just say, God, all the things and be done with prayer that morning, you know? Well, what's, the, what's the value in giving 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes, an hour every morning praying if God already knows why pray? And we had three points, and we used a math equation to help us out because we believe the math and Bible go hand in hand. That's what they taught me at Bible college. Um, we looked at something called the transitive property, which basically just means that these things are equal. We said, hey, prayer is inviting in and interacting with God's presence. So fundamentally, let's define it. Prayer isn't saying, God, come into this place. Prayer is saying, God, I know you're near because it's your character. Maybe I can recognize and then respond to your presence that's already here. Prayer is us saying the Spirit of God dwells in me and amongst his people, and because of that, it changes what I do next. Prayer in the present changes our future action because God's presence, point two, changes us. So if prayer is the presence of God, we looked at Scripture and it says every time, Every time I saw somebody interact with the presence of God, they left a different person. Maybe it didn't stick for very long, but they left a different person. So if prayer is recognizing and interacting with the presence of God, and if the presence of God changes people, then here's what prayer does. Prayer changes us. And we said prayer is the central avenue through which God changes you. So why is prayer worth the time? Because that's how God makes you look more like Jesus. So God makes you better husbands and wives and sons and daughters. Because he says, when you spend time with me in my presence, realizing that I've gone before you and in your midst, it will change what you do next. Prayer is God changing us. And so what we said was, maybe it's not about just trying to be a more honest person. Maybe, maybe it's about praying more and allowing God to change our hearts. And so prayer is interacting with the presence of God that changes us. Prayer is us being changed. But I want to move beyond that today. Because my question today is, I know that prayer changes people. I've seen it done. I've seen people pray for years, and I've seen them become kinder and gentler. I've seen God change people through prolonged prayer. My question today isn't, do we change from prayer? Is it, It's more, does God change our world because we pray? This that idea that kind of got lambasted in the last year. When people send out thoughts and prayers after tragedies, you guys seen this? There's all these articles now that say that's not good enough. That if something bad happens and anybody says, hey, my thoughts and prayers are with, it's gotten kicked back because it's not enough. Thoughts and prayers are just some kind of way for you to say something and not do something. That's not enough. That doesn't actually affect change. And my question this morning is, does it? Outside of you, does prayer have the power to affect change in our world? And so I want to break that down into two categories. The first is, in my opinion, the obvious. Can prayer not just change you, but change our world? There's a Pew Research study done in 2015. And they said there are roughly 2.3 B billion Christians in the world. All right? Big lump sum category. This is evangelicals, which is us. This is some Catholics. This is the big group of people that believe the God of this Bible exists. There are 2.3 billion Christians. So... 
what we mean by that, if there's 2.3 billion Christians and we're all growing and looking more like Jesus because prayer changes you individually, then prayer will change our world. It actually got a little more specific and it broke up like the Jesus affinity in different cities in our country. Guess what city was number one? Dallas, Fort Worth, everybody. That's why you drove past seven churches on your way here. We love the Lord, all right? Uh, so, yeah, yeah, two people clapped. So, um, I love this, by the way. So Dallas, it said 78% of people in some respects said, yeah, I either grew up Christian or I go to church. Or, yeah, I believe in that God. We're not going to break it down and say, do they actually? That's not our job today. It's just an overwhelming number of people in this city that affiliate themselves with Christianity, Okay. One thing I want to point out, just as a side note, I'm going to reference the Cowboys game a couple times because it's going to help me work through this therapeutically this morning. Um, One thing, spoiler alert, I actually believe prayer changes the world around us as we pray. I want you to look and see where Los Angeles is on this list. Way down, okay? So if prayer changes our world and God listens to the righteous men and women who pray, what were we doing from 7 to 10 p.m. last night, right? All we had to do is, anyway, that, that should have happened last week. I should have given that sermon. So prayer affects change. And here, here's my point in that. <laughs> if, if nothing else, God changes us when we pray and we pray all the time, then our world is changed because we're changed. Then our world is changed because 2.3 billion people are kinder and nicer and find hope in Jesus. Then our world is changed. Eugene Peterson is a writer, a theologian, all around stud. And he said, a changed world begins with us and a changed us begins when we pray. So I want to start off by answering the easy part of the question. Can the world be changed through prayer? Fundamentally, yes, because we've already established and believe that prayer changes you and me. But that's not what I want to wrestle with today. I want to wrestle with a tougher question. Outside of you and me, can God change situations and circumstances? Stuff that I can't control, you know? And really, when you talk about prayer, that's what it comes down to is this idea of control. We call it the sovereignty of God. If you don't know what sovereignty means, The sovereignty is that which God can control. So when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that he's in charge. We mean that when we say God is sovereign, God is in control of and can change anything he wants. It's like you probably believe that you are sovereign over your kids. Good luck with that conversation, you know? It's this idea that you are sovereign over the things you can control. So when we say God is sovereign, what we mean is that God can control anything he wants. He can do what he wills. And why that matters is we only pray to things that can control things we can't. It's the nature of prayer. We don't pray to things that we don't believe can affect change outside of us. Then we wouldn't need it in the first place, right? It's kind of like when we cry out and pray to things, we do so hoping that they can fix a problem we can't fix. My daughter on Tuesday went for a four-month checkup, and she got two more shots in her thighs, you know? And I remember the first time this happened, and I remember this time this happened, the first time I didn't know how bad it was going to be in terms of just how much it crushes your soul when your kid looks at you and screams, and she looks at you when you poke her with a needle, and she screams, why aren't you fixing this? She cries out the thing which she thinks can control it, and it's adorable that she thinks that I can take the nurse in a physical battle. I cannot. I'm not a big man. That's from last week, Right? So, so what she did in that beautiful moment of a four-month-old does is she looked to the people that control her life and said, fix this problem. <laughs> you know, why am I in pain? We pray to the things that have more control than us. So whatever you pray to, we pray to the God of the Bible. We do so because we believe God is sovereign. Otherwise, we wouldn't pray in the first place. And, and we see that throughout the scripture. My favorite example is in the New Testament in Mark chapter 4. 
What you have is the disciples learning about who Jesus was. They didn't quite know yet all the way. They were figuring it out. This is early on in their relationship. They're in a boat. Four of them at least are fishermen and so lived on the water for the most part. And, and there's a storm, and, and it got really bad. And he knew it was bad because the professionals thought they were going to die. They said, we're going to die. What's Jesus doing? They said, he's sleeping. And they said, wake him up. And so they went to wake up Jesus. And they said, Master, do you not care that we're all about to die? And Jesus looked at him and said, you have no faith. And, and then Jesus looked at the water. He looked at water and said, stop, and it listened. And this was a moment when they recognized the sovereignty of God. The people, his disciples, looked at each other, and this is verse 41. They said, they were terribly afraid and began to say to one another, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? It's this moment when they realize that God can control more than they can control. It's why we pray. It has to do with the nature of sovereignty and what we believe God controls and allows. 22 times in the four Gospels, Jesus tells people to pray. 22 times, he says, there is a God who controls more than you, you should pray. So my question this morning is, what does prayer change? Does God listen when we pray, you know? And that really has to do with what we believe about what God can control and then his actions outside of that. You have verses like this in the scripture, and there's some tension that pops up at us. In Malachi 3, it says... I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. And and we start at this place where some people, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the will of God, the ability of God to effect change, they think that God has set everything in stone because he's sovereign. They think that tomorrow is not flexible, but it's static because God has a singular will, and he is sovereign, and he's doing something. What they believe is they believe that God has a will and he is in control and he set the course of this place and everything is in its place and can't break off of that. Because they say something like God can't change. It's called the immutability of God, meaning that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if God can't change, then he can't respond differently or he can't change his mind or he can't respond to the prayers of his people because he's already set this in stone. And here, here's what I want to say this morning. I think that sovereignty and free will aren't necessarily juxtaposed. I don't think they're opposites. What I mean by that, if we believed that God is sovereign, he has a will, and he set it in place, and now we're just along for the ride, then prayer doesn't affect much change. And I'm a Western American kid. I grew up in that mindset that God has a will, and so sometimes I fight the demons inside of me of saying, does my prayer actually affect change at all, or is it just for me to grow? Can it actually make God do stuff, you know? Can it actually change tomorrow because I pray today? Origen was a church father in the third century, he said this, he said, if everything happens according to God's will, and if what God wants, if God's will is fixed, and none of the things he wills can be changed, then prayer is in vain. This idea of what we believe about the will of God. And then there's some tension in the text, because we believe that God isn't changed, and if we believe God can never change, then why pray that he might bring about change? But then some verses say things like this in Hosea 11, How can I give you up Ephraim? He's talking to Israel. How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart, God's heart is changed within me. All of my compassion is aroused. In James 5, he says it like this. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. My question is, if God is thoroughly in control, as God is sovereign and God's will always comes about, then how can he change his mind and respond to prayer? What's the point? That's my question, you know? 
And I don't necessarily think that the sovereignty of God, the control of God, and the free will that we have to affect change in our world are juxtaposed. I don't think they're opposites. I think actually true sovereignty is found when freedom is allowed. So let me give you an example. Um, last night, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about the Cowboys game some more. Last night in the Cowboys game, it was fourth down. The game was kind of on the line, fourth quarter, and L.A. had the ball. And they had like eight or nine yards to go. And if they got a first down, the game was pretty much over. If they didn't, we got the ball back, and Dak could miss some more throws. So um, he, uh, cheap shot, sorry. Um, so Jared Goff, actually, it was funny, the coach, Sean McVay, who everybody, man, raves about. He's the best coach in the league, and if you know Sean McVay, you get a head coaching job, you know? And so he was 30 yards off watching this unfold, like, in the background. And, and Jared Goff, their quarterback, rolls out to the right. He, gets, he was supposed to pass the ball, and he ran it instead. He ran it and said and got the first down. And my favorite moment was at the end of the game, a reporter said, hey, you weren't supposed to run there, were you? And he said, I could have if I wanted to. But yeah, it was designed for a pass. My point there is simply this. Sean McVay knew what he was doing. He was smarter than, bigger than the, search, the situation. He was bigger than that one play. And he was still in control, but gave his quarterback the option to get there in a couple different ways. When God gives us freedom, it doesn't mean that he's no longer in control. Real sovereignty is seen that he will accomplish his will regardless of the day-to-day decisions we make because he's bigger than us. Real sovereignty allows for freedom of choice, and that's beautiful. It's why we can say, it's why this tension exists that says that God doesn't change, but then when we pray, he can change his mind, or he can, in a better way, respond to our prayers and change our situations, our todays and our tomorrows. And really what it comes down to is the idea of how this place was designed in the first place. So when we talk about our, our way in the world, our role in the world, oftentimes we, we teach that the sovereignty of God lays the course of our events out, and we are just on the roller coaster of God's redemption, you know? That we just put our hands in the air, say God is good, and enjoy it. But I, I don't know if that's how God designed the world to be, because from the beginning, God did not design us as participants, but collaborators with him to bring about his influence in our world. We see it in Genesis 1. If you go to Genesis 1, oh, we'll go to 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. He says in verse 28, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and everything that moves on the ground. What he's doing there isn't just saying this is what you do. What God's doing is prescribing how this world works. He's giving us insight into design. We talked about it in August. He's saying, this is the design of my world. Not that you're on my roller coaster, but that we work together to bring about good things. Even after sin entered the world, that's how he worked. Even after we didn't play our part, that's how it worked. We see it in Genesis 12 when he's building Israel, right? He's saying, I'm going to start my process of redemption that's going to culminate in Jesus. I'm going to start it with this guy, Abraham. And he says in Genesis 12 to Abraham, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you I will bless all nations. He's saying, you're going to play a part in this too. You're not just along for the ride. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus goes back up into heaven with the church, he says this to the church right before he leaves, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses to spread my influence over the world. 
he paints this picture from the beginning of creation to the fall of mankind to the redemption through Jesus and to the church now that God didn't just make us passive, but he made us collaborators with him to show people that he's good. And if we don't understand that design, then what we do is we sacrifice our choices. What we sacrifice is our ability to bring about change in our world because we work with God to do so. We sacrifice the point of prayer. C.S. Lewis is an author, and he says this. He says, We are not mere recipients or spectators. We're either privileged to share in the game or compelled to collaborate in the work. And that idea of shared participation in the work of God, that that at the end of the day, God's still going to get his plan done, but he allows us to participate in the process, is really beautiful. I don't know how um, proficient you guys are at cooking. I talk about it a lot because I love it, and I talk about the things that I love. And, And one of my pet peeves in this world, in this world, is when people do not know how to cut an onion the proper way. Guys, I don't know why that bothers me, but it does. A couple years ago, I went over to my then boss's house, and he was making chili. And I don't know, I don't know how he was cutting this onion. It was like he was bird boxing the onion. I mean, he just hit this like he was literally. I, I don't know what was happening on this cutting board. There's a way to do it where the dice is consistent and it limits your tears. It's for your good. And he's cutting this onion, and I look at him and I said, "Man, what are you?" doing? And he said, I'm cutting an onion. And I said, no, you're not. And his daughter said, man, let the dude cut an onion. And I thought, I need to back up a little bit, you know? Have you ever made a meal with your kids? Or I used to make meals all the time with middle school and high school students. Here's the deal. is in those moments, in those moments, I could do it quicker. I could do it better. I could do it more consistently. But when we sit down at the table together and eat, and we still get fed chili at the end of the day, even if the onions aren't perfectly diced, there is more joy, there is more love, and there is more gladness. It's this idea that God allows us to participate in the process of bringing his influence in a broken world because he's gracious and because he loves us. And what that means is that the decisions we make actually matter. C.S. Lewis went on to say, um, he commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. It's this idea that God says, you are participants with me to bring about my influence, so when you pray, it matters. There's a French theologian and philosopher named Blaine Pascal, and he said it like this. He said, God instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures, I love this, the dignity of causality. What that means is there's dignity when we do things that it actually matters. That's God saying, I care. So the question before me, the question that I have is what does our prayer change? What does it change? Can God be changed by prayer? But God doesn't change. What's the difference there? How does that work? There's a couple stories I want to go to. One's in the Old Testament, one's in the New to show continuity. You can go there if you want. We're going to be in Genesis, or in Exodus 32, excuse me. It is a fantastic story. It talks about Moses. And Moses had just brought his people through the work of the Lord. They collaborated together out of Egypt. Ten plagues, ten miracles. Each of the miracles, each of the plagues actually knocked off an Egyptian deity. And then they finally get to the sea. And we've all seen the Charlton Heston movie. And they they get to the sea and they see Pharaoh and the chariots. And by the way, at that time, the chariot was the most advanced weapon of of military that had ever been existed. And these guys were just on foot. They had some camels. And so these chariots were rushing after him. And they said to Moses, we're just going to die right here. Thanks a lot. Their memory is really short. 
And Moses, you know, the story sticks his staff out over the Red Sea and it parts. They walk through on dry ground. And then Egypt goes to follow them and the entire army, the fiercest army at that point the world had ever known, was wiped out. So they celebrate, they get to this mountain, and Moses says, I'm going to go do business with God. You guys wait down here and please don't do anything bad, right? Didn't last very long. He's up on the mountain for a couple weeks and he's talking with God. And in the meantime, his people say, I need to worship something I see. We still have the same conversations. It just doesn't look like a golden calf anymore. And so they say, it's not that I love calves. I just need to worship something that I see. So let's make something, anything. Let's make a calf out of all of our gold and say, this is what brought us out of Egypt. We need to see something to worship it. Faith is difficult. And so they start doing that. And God, because he knows all, sees. And he gets pretty angry. And so in chapter 32, in verse 9, he said this to Moses. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They're a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that you brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your anger. He's praying, begging God to stop. Turn from your anger, relent, and don't bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring disaster on the people as he had threatened. It's a beautiful story of God saying he was going to do something and then stopping. We have a couple options here in terms of interpretation. One, If you believe that God never changes, you believe that God wasn't really going to do it in the first place, you know? That God was making an empty threat, that he was being hyperbolic, that in some way he meant he was going to do something bad, but he never really intended to, and I don't know a God that lies, and so I don't think God was making an empty threat to his people. I think what we read in the text is a God who was fed up with the idolatry of his people. I think he was fed up with his people not respecting his authority, not, not... not being thankful for what he'd done for all of the entire um, country. And I think he says, I'm going to start over. And, and Moses says, please don't. That's a really interesting moment. Because I think in that moment, we get a picture of if prayer actually changes things. If it changes God's response. Because here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't change God. Because what we know is two things. One, that God promised to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. And even if he started over with Moses, he still would have done it. He wasn't saying, I'm not keeping my end of the deal. Two, we know that in this moment, if he relents, he's being true to his character. (laughs) So it says in a couple chapters later, it says it in Psalms, it says it over and over in the Old Testament, that I, the Lord your God, here's who I am. I am slow um, I am slow and I, to, to, to anger, I'm compassionate, I'm loving, and I'm faithful to you. He says this again and again in the scriptures. So by God relenting from the disaster he was going to bring the people, that was just all he's doing is being consistent in character. It's God not changing in the first place. It's God saying, I'm going to be who I'm going to be. So because God responds to the prayers of his people doesn't mean that God is changing. Rather, it means that God is keeping with his consistency of character that we know God to be. One author said, and I liked what he said about it, 
Um, he was talking about, about how Moses and how the Lord had changed. And he said essentially that God changes because it keeps, God, God re- re- responds in a different way because it keeps his consistency of character. Because he's always loving. He's always compassionate. And he's always good. And so what we see in the text is this idea that, that God absolutely responds to the prayers of his people. Charles Finney is a theologian, and he says, if you ask why God ever answers prayer at all, the answer must be because he is unchangeable. And that's a beautiful perspective from which to look at praying. Why does God answer prayer? Because he's always loving. He's always kind. He's always compassionate. And it's him being consistent with his character. And so when we talk about prayer, we get this overall picture in the scriptures through Moses that God responds to the heart and the prayers of his people, and that doesn't mean that he's changed. He's still the same God. We see it. I can pick several other examples from the Old Testament. I can go to Abraham and Lot. Remember the Sodom and Gomorrah story? The woman that turned to a pillar of salt, right? God says, I'm going to destroy them. They're really, really wicked. I don't like wickedness. And Abraham says, my nephew lives there. Please don't. He says, hey, let me find 50 righteous people. And God says, okay, I won't do it if you find 50. And then Abraham says 40, and they, they barter down to 10 righteous people. And all the while, God's saying, okay, you prayed for this, and we are co-laboring together because that's how I designed it. Okay, I will change my action because you've asked me to, because that's what love looks like, because we are co-laboring together to increase my influence in this world. And so we see it in Abraham and Lot. We see it in Hezekiah. He's a king in Israel, and he says, give me more years to live so that people might know you more. And he says, okay, you're 15 more years. We have this idea that when people pray, it changes the heart of God. It doesn't change who God is, right? Because God doesn't change. It doesn't change his character. It doesn't change his overall plan that his sovereignty will make happen. It doesn't change that. What it does change is how he responds to a people that asks him to be love and kind, to ask him to do these things. It's a beautiful picture we get in Moses. Uh, another story in the New Testament is Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is um, right after Jesus left them and persecution started, I don't know, in the last five or ten years for the church. And so Herod, who's kind of in control in the area, is having a hard time with the influence being built up by the Christians. And so he has a pride problem. And so he tries to imprison and kill them. And he'd been successful. And in Acts chapter 12, what we get is a picture of, of Peter that gets arrested. We get a picture of, of Peter that gets thrown in jail. And let me read from, um, chapter, or from verse 5 on. It says this, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. He went to prison, and then the church said, I'm going to pray. Verse 6, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial and probably death, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And the sentries stood guard at the entrance. What that means is when you were in that kind of imprisonment, you slept bound to the soldier. Because if you left and you escaped, the soldier got your punishment, which in this case was probably death. So they took it very seriously. So Peter is laying on the ground and he's bound to two probably bigger, larger soldiers. And the church just prays. Verse 7. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put your clothes on and put your sandals on. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Verse 9. Peter followed him out of the prison. 
but he had no idea what the angel was doing or what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. These are huge gates. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Peter responded and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen because they wanted him dead. It's this beautiful picture of God responding. And the first one was simply that God responds when we pray. I love this story because it, in my opinion, talks a little bit about what God's looking for when we pray. I love it because what he's asking for and what he wants, I think, is I think it's what's said in James when it says that you don't have because you don't ask. I think when we pray, God simply wants us to, he's waiting for us to, he's begging us to ask him to deliver. He's begging us to ask him to bring about change in the world because he's bigger, he's more sovereign than we are. He's asking us to change the things which we know we can't change. But it's hard because sometimes we don't have time to ask, we don't want to ask. Because asking implies fundamentally that there are things that are bigger than me. There are things that I can't control, you know? So about three or four months ago, I got a, a new computer. I got an old computer, um, but it was a newer one than I had. I had, a, I had a MacBook 2010. And one thing you got to know about me, I am my dad's kid. I am cheap. If it works, he's from a farm in Iowa. I'm going to use it, right? This one had these lines. You'd open it up. You can ask the staff. It had these pink lines that would just go everywhere and you couldn't see. And you literally had to take the screen and bang it back until the pink lines went away every day, right? So finally they said, Charlie, when are you going to get an updated version? I said, okay, I will. And I did. And um, then the fun starts. I think I'm more adept at IT things than I actually am because Google exists and I can read. And so I said that night, I was like, I'm just going to transfer my files over. And so I started. And then something happened, and I Googled it, and I was like, great, I got this. And then something else happened, and I Googled it, and I was like, okay. And then it's one in the morning, and I Googled something else, and I was like, I'm just going to reformat and start over. And I wiped everything. Like, nine years of stuff. It's like two in the morning. I'm sitting at my dining room table. This is pre-kid, so I'm up on purpose with my choice. And I, am, I said some fun words, and I said, oh, my gosh, I think I just lost everything. Everything, you know? And I... I don't know if you guys have had that happen. I lost all my papers from college and from grad school. I lost pictures. I lost my wedding pictures and my wedding video. I told my wife, she's like, that's okay. And I was like, oh my gosh. She just doesn't realize what's happening. I'm not going to bed. I'm going to die. And so I lost everything. And the next morning I get in to work here. And I don't know if you know, Andy, he has an IT company. That's what he, that's what he does when he's not doing worship here. And they specialize in Apple products. So I said, Andy, I, I lost everything. He said, what'd you do? And I walked him through the steps that Google told me that I thought I was being smart at. And he said, what is wrong with you? And he said, I could have fixed it. You just had to ask. I could have fixed it. I know what, what happened. And I said, yeah, because I didn't ask. I thought I had it, you know? I, I think God says, come and ask, because in doing that, we remind ourselves that he's sovereign and we are not. The church, when they saw Peter go away, prayed because they had no other recourse but to say, God, save this man that we love, because we can't do this on our own. I think when we talk about prayer, when we talk about sovereignty, when we talk about choice, when we talk about what God controls, I think fundamentally prayer changes or allows God to respond differently because he loves us and he listens and it acknowledges from our perspective that we can't control everything. 
And Andy said, I could have saved it. You just didn't ask. And I said, yeah, I probably should have, you know. And I got some of it back, which is awesome. But I still lost some stuff. I still, I still think about it because I was unwilling to ask. And so when we find, when we see that God actually responds to the prayers of his people because he loves us, because we are co-laborers with him in this. We have different kinds of responses when he actually does something. So look, if you want to, in Acts 12, the end of the story, verse 12. When it dawned on him, when it dawned on Peter that he was free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where the people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked on the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she said she was so overjoyed, and she ran back in without opening it. And she exclaimed, Peter's at the door. Love this. They'd been praying all night long, and their response was, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. And why I, I really like what happens here is I think all way too often, I think we pray for things to happen. I think we want to believe that God can actually bring about change in our world. We want to believe that prayer does something. We want to believe that God is sovereign but still allows freedom and it's not a threat to his sovereignty. We want to believe these things and then when God acts, we don't know where to look and we write it off as something else, you know? We say, Peter's knocking at the door. I've been praying for Peter. That could not be Peter. I'm too busy praying for Peter. <laughs> it's, it's this idea that, that it can't be what God said he'd do, which is help us. There's a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It's a satirical work where it's a conversation between two demons, and there's a demon junior and a demon senior, and he's getting advice on how to trip up Christians, on how to make them not love the Lord as much. And there's a part on prayer, I just want to read it, This is the senior demon talking to the junior demon. He said, this is what you do if you don't want people to pray. He says, quote, worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. Don't forget the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If at the thing he prays for, if the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see one or many of the physical causes which led up to it, and quote, therefore it would have happened anyway. And thus granted prayer becomes just as good as a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. It's this idea of coincidence in the Christian life and what we put value in. So before I got married, when I moved back down here and took this gig, I lived with a lot of guys. I had a superpower. It was like a spiritual gift. I, I got guys that I lived with married. I did. I got guys married. I lived at a house in Flower Mound, lived with three guys. Within a year, they were all married. Two of them weren't even dating at the time, right? I moved into another house with three more guys. All those guys got married before I did. I have a superpower of getting guys married. And for the right price, I'll move in with your son, right? Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. It's the work of the Lord. (laughs) I'm going to leave my family to help him start his. But I I was living with this guy that I moved in with. And it was funny because, you know, he's one of my best friends now, but I remember when we looked at the house together, you know, he's like, we're going to move in together. And I looked at him and I said, hey, just so you know, and we can start on the same page, um, we're going to be roommates, but not friends. I have enough of those. I appreciate you, you know, because I was really compassionate. (laughs) And and so we got to be friends because that's what happens when you live with somebody, I hope. And I had a friend of mine who actually, he was a nurse in Dallas. I had a friend of mine that I'd maybe kept up with from high school to a small private school, and she was a nurse at Dallas at the same hospital. I said, you guys should meet, you know? You should meet. 
And, 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 and finally, over the course of about six or seven months, they did meet, and um, they dated for a little while, and now they're married, and I'm the godfather of their kid, you know, which is beautiful. My point is simply this. You can look at that and say, yeah, well, one thing led to another, and I was bound to marry somebody, or God is good in that moment. You can look at that and say, well, God maybe allowed something to happen because they both prayed for wives and husbands at that moment. And you can say, this is an answer to prayer instead of just a coincidence. The Archbishop William Temple says it like this, when I pray, coincidences happen. I love that. The, qu- the, question, the question is, when God does answer, what do we ascribe the answer to? We sit there and we pray and we say, God, we need you. And Peter shows up at the door and we say, well, he was probably on his way anyway. You know, <laughs> didn't actually affect anything. This was going to happen. But it's not the story that I get from the scriptures about what moves the heart of God, who is sovereign, who can control the things which we can't. It's this beautiful picture of what prayer does in my world when so quickly I forget that it is any real or lasting, brings any lasting change to the world I live in. C.S. Lewis wrote another book on prayer actually wrote it on miracles, and he says this. In this place where it's so hard to point to evidence for why prayer works, he says maybe the point isn't the evidence. Quote, the impossibility of empirical proof is a spiritual necessity. A man who knew empirically that an event had been caused by his prayer would feel like a magician. His head would turn and his heart would be corrupted. The Christian is not to ask whether this or that event happened because of a prayer. He is rather to believe that all events without exception are answers to prayer. It's our posture to the question, does the prayer change the world around us? If the world changes, who brought it? And what do we ascribe it to? Here's what I know. I know that God is bigger than me. That God is sovereign, that he can control things that I can't control. And I know God listens, and I know from the scripture that when God listens to the prayer of his people, he does things. I know that God brings about change in our world because we pray. Because we are co-laborers with him to bring about and increase the influence of the kingdom of God in our world. It's how we were designed from beginning to now, Karl Barth is one of the better theologians of the 20th century, and he says, God is not deaf, he listens. More than that, he acts. He does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. That is what the word answer means. So when we ask the question, is prayer worth it? Does prayer change? What we're talking about is really, is there power in prayer? And it comes down to what do we believe about the sovereignty of God? in the actions of us. And now those sovereignty and, and our prayers interact together. Are we co-laborers with God or are we just along for the ride? I see one answer in scripture. So what we say when we talk about prayer is the power of prayer is really the belief that God is in control, that he listens, and that our prayers today have an ability to change our tomorrow. And it's hard because I forget that. It's hard because I don't want to believe that. It's hard because I forget to pray because I don't see answers right away when I pray. We're talking about that next week. It's hard because I live in a world where they say it was going to happen anyway because I can't prove it. Maybe that's not the point. But I read the scriptures and I say to myself, God says he's in control and that he hears us and that when we talk to him because we work with him, he acts and he changes things we can't. The power of prayer. So for me, what this does is it encourages me to pray more. It encourages me to remember my need and simply ask when I wouldn't ask. It encourages me to remember that prayer doesn't just change me, but it changes the world I live in because God is here. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful for 
just your goodness. I'm thankful for your sovereignty and that you've allowed us freedom in that sovereignty because you are bigger than what we bring to the table and that we work together with you to increase your influence and bring about reconciliation to a broken world. I'm thankful that we can speak to you in prayer and that you listen. May we be encouraged this morning to keep praying. Maybe we haven't an answer in a long time, but that doesn't mean that you don't hear and that you're not good and that you can't bring about change. May we be encouraged to pray. Because when we pray, we believe you act. When you act, we believe you change things we can't. May we be believers in the power of prayer, not just to change us, but to change the world around us as well. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus who changes our hearts. Amen.